This past year has been a year of change for the podcast. From Richard's departure to moving back to the studio, we've been doing some things a little differently. However, I'm happy to announce that for the next couple of months, I'll be joined by Regina Nuzzo, professor at Gallaudet University and freelance science writer, while my co-host Rosemary Pennington is away teaching in Europe for the summer. I'm John Baylor. I'll be hosting this special episode of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. In this episode, we'll be looking back at some of our favorite episode moments from the past 12 months. Starting off is returning guest Michelle Cardell. With summer right around the corner and people looking to any so-called doctor to drop a couple of pounds for the beach, her episode on fad diet trends is needed now more than ever. You know, when you were talking a bit about the these distinctions between kind of the, you know, anybody can hang out a nutritionist shingle and <laughs> and express opinions, you've, you've commented a bit about the idea of these, uh, the influencer advice and some of the misguided nutrition advice. And I, I really appreciated the one piece that you wrote where you were talking about some of the uh, signals, the red flags of concern. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, what people should be aware of and say, well, wait a minute, you may not want to follow these uh, nuggets of so-called wisdom. Uh, so the first thing that you want to look out for is somebody making like these huge claims or like blanket statements. So something like carbs are bad for you, or no one should eat sugar. You know, um, there's no one right way to eat. And ultimately, um, you know, the dietary pattern that you choose should be decided by, you know, what do you like? What do you dislike? What's, what's available to you in terms of your resources? And then also what's your medical history? And ultimately a one size fits all doesn't work. The data shows that it's a lot less about the macronutrient composition of your diet, whether it's high fat or high carb in terms of effectiveness for weight loss over the long term than it is of how well that you can, you know, adhere to that diet. Mm -hmm. Adherence reigns, you know, so whatever works for you over the long term is what's going to work for you. And it needs to be a solution that's livable. It needs to be something that actually works within your life. And at the end of the day, you know, with these influencers, often their body is their business card in many ways. And that's what they use to, to have influence. But just because somebody is fit or young or attractive doesn't mean that if you do what they do, you're going to look like them. We could all move our bodies in the exact same way and eat the same things. And we would, our body shapes and size would look very different across the board. So that's the first thing that I would watch out. The second red flag would be that an influencer is selling something like a supplement or a detox or a tea. That is a huge red flag. And people are struggling with their weight. They're in a super vulnerable place. And I get really frustrated when I see that, um, people are basically targeting their marketing to people who are in a really vulnerable place and then offering them a quick fix that is not based in evidence whatsoever. 
Um, and then the third flag is that they're missing credentials. You know, we talked about already, what's the difference between a registered dietitian or registered dietitian nutritionist versus just somebody who says that they're a nutritionist? Anyone who just says that they're a nutritionist, that in no way, shape or form says that they have the, um, that they've studied the area of nutrition, that it comes from an accredited university you know, the dietitians are going to have completed at least 1,200 hours of supervised practice and passed a board certifying exam. So you want to make sure that who you're turning to for nutrition or weight-related advice is somebody who has the credentials to back that up. What an insightful commentary. Thank you, Michelle. Next up is insight that you might not want to think about. But in our digital world, the amount of information that companies have about us is staggering. And what they do with that information is a topic of conversation with another returning guest, Tamandra Harkness. Could, could you just give us a little bit of the, the sort of the foundation? I mean, you've referred to history and this kind of this co-evolution in history of both kind of this interest in examining consumer behavior and insight, as well as kind of the data that's being produced. And, and I mean, in fact, you're, the, the first part of this the series is, is subtitled this The Birth of Consumer Insight. So give us a, give us a short history lesson. Well, that goes back really to the 19th century when obviously it was all analog, it was all paper and pens. But interestingly, I think the United States really drove that because you had a very widely distributed market and mail order was quite important and people were perhaps quite geographically spread out. And that had a couple of effects, one of which was that mail order and mail order lists became really important and so valuable, in fact, that lists of potential customers, maybe for your mail order medicines, were so valuable that there was a falling out of two, two men in Chicago who used to work together, had a, had a mail order business together, and then they fell out and there was an argument about who got the mailing list and who had stolen data off the mailing list. And one of them ended up shooting the other one dead, which is probably the first lethal crime connected to data theft. <laughs> uh, so you had this thing where mailing lists were really important. And that was obviously about how do you get hold of not only the names and addresses of people, but they would get people to write in with their symptoms. So you had quite sensitive personal data. You had like somebody's name and address and the symptoms they had. And then they would sell these lists on to other suppliers. And, you know, there wasn't much data ethics, I think, in those days. But there was also this other thing going on, which became important later from another direction, which was if you were moving around, people didn't know who you were. And so you'd go into a store and ask for credit. So, you know, I've got money coming in. Can you let me have this stuff on credit and I'll pay you when I get the money? And nobody knew who you were. So lists of people who were reliable or unreliable also became very valuable for the for the merchants, the shopkeepers. And so that was quite an early thing. Again, this, this started to happen in the 19th century. And those credit lists grew up and became credit agencies. And then those merged with uh, consumer lists and became the kind of data brokers we have today, where they have a history of your, your credit behavior and also of stuff that you're interested in, stuff that you've bought. And now they can put it together with your address and how to find you and so on. And that's why they're so immensely powerful as sources of information today. So, so these would be the people that uh, essentially try to categorize groups of consumers, right, in, into certain types and would say, 
you know the, these these people would buy this x product versus y and and that's only continued really has it as we move from you know those early days until we get into the social media and the sort of mobile phone era where you can actually categorize people down to even finer detail right that's right i think very early on it was about very broad categories it was okay on the sales side you've got maybe people who've suffered these symptoms or we know these people are of a certain sex and age and they live in a certain area so we know that they're going to want certain things and if you know if they've bought farm implements before they probably want some more farm implements and on the other hand really quite a binary kind of scale of do you trust these people with credit or not (laughs) Uh, and but now the categories that you put people into can be so small that maybe there's only literally one or two people in a postcode or a zip code area who will fall into that category. So when we talk about things being personalised, that it, it really is, you're still essentially just giving people a niche, a marketing niche, but the the population that they're in can be so small that you can meaningfully say it's personalised. And, and that obviously brings the ethical problems about privacy but really if you think about the 19th century and these these lists where you'd written to a magazine asking for advice on your your hemorrhoids or something and somebody's now added you to a list and sold your name and address on a list marked hemorrhoids to some company you've never heard of then um, that was also arguably not very respective not very respectful of your privacy thank you tamandra for that illuminating answer Another great conversation featured Sander Vanderlinden talking about the spread of misinformation and conspiracies through social media. You recently co-authored a paper about how conspiracy moves through Twitter, and I wondered if you could talk a bit about sort of what sparked your interest in that particular topic and maybe even that topic in that space. Yeah. Um, well, you know, my interest in conspiracy theories has been long long standing because uh when i was young one of my brothers was really enthralled in the whole uh truther movement uh and we had we had very very long debates and we would get our information from very different sources um and uh you know this this was around the time that uh you know i was in high school maybe or or first year of college and and so um i became really fascinated by people's belief systems and the psychology of it and um, you know, I wouldn't say that that motivated me to study psychology necessarily, but it was it was it was interesting to have those discussions. Um, so that was an early sort of motivator. Uh, but for that study that you mentioned, particularly, it's if you, if you look at a lot of the research, you know, that people do on this topic, then often what we do is we ask a bunch of students uh, to rate, you know, how likely they are to believe in, in some conspiracy theory. And then we look at what correlates with, with that belief. And one of the things that we got frustrated with is that real conspiracy theorists don't want to come to our lab. (laughs) (laughs) They'll they'll probably have microchip implanted if they did, you know. (laughs) Exactly. We're part of the conspiracy, you know, at the scientists and everything. And so, I mean, there are some techniques people have used. I have a colleague who infiltrated the Flat Earth Conference and things like that. But but then the problem is that, that, you know, go through ethics committees and you have to disclose what why you're asking people questions and then they still don't want to participate, right? And so, you know, uh, one way around that for us was to use these sort of new computational methods that allow you to scrape, you know, I guess, 
quote unquote big data, although everyone uses that word, you know, it really depends on what, what's big, what's not big. But for us, for us, it's big because we usually deal with, you know, 100 students, 200 students. And so we were able to, to actually look at the top uh, accounts of the major conspiracy theorists on Twitter. So, so the actual, you know, main sort of spreaders and we scraped all of their timeline data. Um, and then also we looked at a random subset of their followers and we tried to sort of map out the structure of their social network and what they were talking about. And, and one of the things we, and we did the same for popular scientists, by the way. So we looked at who the top popular scientists are and see what they're talking about and what their followers are talking about. And there were some really interesting, uh, interesting differences. So for example, we found that the conspiracy clusters really at higher scores on themes like fear and anxiety. You know, they were promoting information that contained those type of themes. Um, they were also looking uh, at, there was a lot of distress, you know, things you would, you would expect, but also some things that we didn't necessarily anticipate. So for example, they were not as high on promoting certainty as we thought. In fact, the scientists also had a lot of certainty in their language, which was interesting because scientific process is, is very uncertain in some ways. And so there were some interesting differences, but by and large, we found that, uh, you know, they were, they were very high on the use of profanities um, uh, in, in their language. Uh, death, religion were, were big themes. Um, and, you know, it kind of makes sense. You know, it's always it's always about some mysterious cover up of somebody who died um, or, you know, whether it's Princess Diana, Osama bin Laden. And so, you know, it, and what we found is that the followers adopt a lot of this language, too. And that's kind of why it's why it spreads. I mean, it wasn't a causal study. So, you know, we can't say that, you know, one caused the other. But it was it was interesting that there was such a, an association between what the in what we call the influencers we're talking about and how their followers were sort of echoing those concerns. Uh, and so very, very negative conversations overall. Ah, fascinating, Sander, truly. Everyone, make sure you go onto your computer and play a round of bad news soon. The last person we want to spotlight on this episode is Mike Orkin, who, despite the big bet he convinced me to take out on Bengals this year, is also an expert in the gambling industry and how games of skill and games of chance differ. You know, I, th I thought that, you know, in, in reading through some of your materials, you had that some discussion of the idea of, a, a, of the scale, a gradient of, of chance to skill. So could you yeah, talk about yeah, some yeah. of the anchors of that scale and some of the, the, <laughs> the sports that are there? I mean, I think it's easy to anchor it. It's really hard to think about where you, how you order it within yeah. that. Yeah, the chance versus skill spectrum has been around for a while. Um, it was invented by regulators who don't want to don't want to legalize uh, gaming. And I, I actually have done some consulting over the, the last number, last few years. Um, and I, I, as I mentioned in my chance article, I testified in a case on the East Coast about illegal poker machines. It had nothing to do with sports betting and it had nothing to do with the internet. But they asked me in court, the judge asked me, or the, I forget it was the judge or the, the attorney representing um, the state, asked me to draw what he called the chance skill spectrum. The chance skill spectrum means you start at, let's say, roulette, which is all chance, and end at some actual uh, event game like uh, bowling or golf, not, not the betting on it, but the actual event. And of course, even, in, in, and it's kind of silly because where is blackjack uh, rank and compared to poker, and it's just hard to 
really understand what it means. Plus, even an actual game, forgetting about gambling, even if you if you have two equal players in a, a golf game or a bowling game or a football game, two equal teams, um, then the result is somewhat due to chance. And so there's chance in every type of game, whether you're betting or not betting, whatever. So that so-called chance skill spectrum is kind of silly in place. So the, the other definition of chance versus skill is a statistical definition, which I um, used in a number of my uh, consulting projects, which is just you look at player data and see if some players exceed what luck will allow. So you can be lucky in a game of chance or even a game that has skill, but you can measure statistically by doing a hypothesis test in a p-value, which statisticians know about, whether a player in a game, given enough games, whether their win percentage has gone above um, what the range of luck is. Um, and that's easy enough to measure. And so if you have, if you have enough data, you can tell whether there's uh, skill in that definition. Well, and there you have it. Thank you, Mike, and everyone for listening to this episode of Stats and Stories. And we'll be back next week with our first episode featuring new guest host, Regina Nuzzo. Thank you so much. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.